for some reason, John Cena's entrance song just started playing in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, hey guys, how's it going? I'm sorry, I know that. We're uh, we're talking to you in the future right now. Well, I guess it'll be super past for us. Yeah, but it's the future for you because we have to record some stuff for February ahead of time because yeah. I don't know something really important's happening. Yeah, I'm um I may be getting married, I guess. You know, it's kind of a big deal. And yeah. and I'm marrying her. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> I just did a very funny face at like, my microphone. <laughs> right. No. No, I'm going to be the officiant and I'm going to marry her and Michael. I'm going to marry the shit out of you guys. Officially um, official. Officially official. I'm very, very excited. And also, I would like to say we're being extremely responsible with recording this far in advance. I'm very proud of us. Me too. Like, we're kind of pre-recording all of February. So, like, you have time to, like, get married, go on a honeymoon, and, like, come back and recoup before. Um, But it is February. So, because of that, and we are a history podcast, um, we are going to be covering Black History Month stories. Yep. Yeah. So... But we wanted to cover it from a couple of angles. Um, so today, it, it, you might hear some things that are a little bit sad, but it's stuff that we should know about and talk about. And things, for a lot of it, our history books just... Didn't cover. Skipped right over like it never happened. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. It's like the book was like written by people with a different kind of interest in mind of what you wanted to know. Um, White people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So today is kind of like that, but... Uh, in the upcoming week, um, we definitely also want to cover, you know, some, some happier things, some happier things, some celebrations, like some... prosperous uh, stories of of the black, black community. History. Yeah, like just you know, we don't we don't want to just be all like the sad stuff, even though the sad stuff is important. I think it's also important that we recognize um, achievements as well. Yeah. So I think we're gonna do like. A kind of more serious week, and then a more fun week, and then yeah, a more off. serious week, and then a more fun week. Yep. Yep. So we're going to be trading off on that. Um, but yeah, very um, happy to be covering this. We had so many different stories in mind. Yeah. And then I had to be like, okay, it's, it, it, God willing, there will be another February. <laughs> yes. If, um, if and we don't have like to us. condense it just oh. to, to February, but also it is, it's, you know, it's great. It's a great month. Yeah. Um, so we get to do eight really good stories that mm-hmm. we're, we feel very strongly about and we're excited Definitely. to tell you guys about. Definitely. Um, yeah. And, and we covered it. I think I said it in episode one, it's like stuff that you should know. So um, try to cover stuff. Some things that you may have already heard of, but also some things that we just didn't. Yeah. Wasn't things there. that, you know, at the very least they were news to us at some point and we were yeah. shocked to hear it. Yeah, I kind of um, cover where I I heard of my one for the first time. Um and I I I'm, we're not covering it this February, but um the one I'm doing this time, I I saw in a show. And I was like, that can't be real. And then the other one I saw that was also in a show was the Tulsa Race Massacre. Oh, yeah. That's... Which I was like, that can't be real. And of There's course There's like it planes is. and shit. Yeah. Uh and actually that was 100% real. And that was yeah. what was that? The Watchmen? Yeah, is where it's that's like the portrayed. it's like the first scene in like the yeah. first episode, I think. In the, um, sh- uh, the show, in the show, in the yeah. show, not the movie. Um, the and I was like, well, can't... it might be in the comic series. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I was like, that can't possibly be real. We would know about it, right? Yeah, they would teach would that in schools. They definitely would tell us about. Yeah, it. they would definitely tell us about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, no, they won't. 
And that was another one that was like, there were so many stories, and I'll probably, that's one I'll probably put into the pot. Uh, next week, next. I, was, I was struggling to pick. Yeah. What to, like, I was having a crisis, because which there is good were because so many amazing stories that I wanted to cover, but yeah, I think I picked, good. I, I decided today. I'm just, I know who I'm doing, <laughs> but you'll, you'll have to wait until next week to find out. I don't know. Tell um, me about can, your... Yeah. Just tell me about your week. How was your week? My week. You. Oh, what did you do yesterday? You'd like, well, you okay, had some so we, yesterday. Yeah, so we had, like, um, we too. had sad things Friday. Um, Michael's grandmother passed away. She was a wonderful woman and just so important in his life. And so that was really sad. Um, we had her funeral Friday. Um, so that was rough on everyone. Um, and then Saturday, uh, we just kind of, you know, we hung out. We stayed overnight uh, in Titusville and uh, stayed the night at his mom's and hung out. And I adore his mother. So how getting... is, yes, how was Colleen with a K? Uh, Colleen with a K is fantastic. I love her um, so much. So we got to hang out with her. Uh, that was really nice. And just kind of had like an easy Sunday morning. She made like, uh, or Saturday morning, I guess. She made biscuits and gravy. And that was Ooh. nice. And then on the way home, um, we stopped by an event at Swan Brewing. I've never been Lake there, Lake. but I've heard good things. Ben goes there, So right? good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a really good brewery down in Lakeland. And Lakeland's like cute now, which is weird Some for of it. Me Some still. of it's still very Lakeland. Yeah. But. Gotta the, be in the right place. The areas that we go are cute now. Right. Um, so we get to take Yogi, our dog. Aww, um, and good. he got to meet, make some dog friends. But uh, mm -hmm. we do this thing. I think we're probably going to do it every year. We're in Tampa, at least uh, the Tampa Bay Ale Trail, where it's um, a little booklet mm -hmm. with like 40 or 80 breweries. I don't know. Um, and you get stamps for your first visit. And then your second visit, you get a free beer. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had to turn in ours from last year to get our prizes. Mm -hmm. So we got like sunglasses and like a shaker cool. cup. And that was cool. Um, and then we did, um, where'd we go? Oh, the Descent Brewery over in Lakeland. Okay. And it's funny, there was a couple who was at one, the first brewery, and we <laughs> talked to them. Uh-huh. And then they were at the second brewery. That's hilarious when And they happens. were like, oh my God, stop following us. And then three more couples <laughs> came in who were at the first brewery. Oh my gosh, that's not the first time that's happened, uh, at least, well, to you, for yeah. sure, because I know it's happened with you and I when we've gone to, like, breweries and yeah. stuff. And, and it's like, like hey, that Ever happened to us when we went to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, everyone um, just decides to do a brewery day, and there's a bunch close together. It's a great, it's um, a great time. I highly then, recommend it if you've got uh, breweries in your hometown. Yeah, and as we were walking to our car, we saw that first couple again. They are like, okay, you have to <laughs> okay, stop. But really. And I was like, I promise we're just going to our car, and like, we are too. Don't follow us home. <laughs> um, but it was like an older couple from Wisconsin, and they were just hilarious. That's so but, cute. That's so cute. Yeah, what'd you do this week? Uh, well, I discovered a new game. <laughs> it's just dance <laughs> on the switch and i don't play i don't play video games and i'm still not technically uh but basically it i'm is. just dancing my little butt off uh guys look they have like all of the good dances monster mash uh the chicken dance <laughs> single ladies so um what's morgan morgan's saying is the next time you're we're up in the club you're yeah down. the next time we're up in the club yep uh -huh. <laughs> definitely gonna happen at some point um yeah but no it's it's a lot of fun uh yesterday i had guitar lessons which was a lot of fun nice. i have not seen that person my the the yeah, instructor exactly. uh since maybe september okay. because then work began doing its thing and i was like i just don't have right off this time I'm, well, never... I'm glad you got to i'm 
Sorry for your fingers. I'm sure they're very sore, but they're okay. Cause I mean, I still kind of I I practice a little bit at home, but yeah. Okay. So saw him. Uh, that was fun. Oh, he had a, he, had, he has three cats. Okay, one he catnapped from the parking lot <laughs> at <laughs> um I know rescue. And it's a rescue uh, from a parking the parking lot over by the Regency Starbucks. Uh. Um, and he's he's an all black kitty, and Aww. his name is Poe. Um, there's, I don't remember the fluffy one's name, but then there was a Garfield cat that looks like Garfield because he's big as hell, but he was so soft. His name was Malcolm. Oh, I love Malcolm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was very distracting. I've lost all interest in playing guitar when Malcolm entered the yeah, room. That's fair. I was Mal- like, oh. Sounds like he has a very commanding presence. He does. <laughs> Power. He <has> a presence. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen that meme, but if you haven't, mm-hmm. look it up. Uh, it's a chunky cat. It's yeah, well, good. yeah. And he was a little chunky. So, yeah, I got to see him. And then I went by the Trader Joe's, mm, which takes all of my, like, willpower to be a nice person. But it was my fault. I went there on a Saturday oh, at, yeah. like, 4 p.m. Oh, no. I that mean, was my fault. I would never fuck with that. I don't know why that parking lot there are puts... more Trader Joe's. Yeah, I wish they would put more in this area. I don't understand. There's clearly, or at the very least, at the very least, Trader Joe's, if you're listening, at least. Make it get a, a Walmart bigger, size. Yeah, like, or like just a bigger parking lot, a bigger building, something. Something. Please, I beg. Because when you go there, even, and this happens even like on a Wednesday in the middle of the day, it's still busy. Mm-hmm. And you just have to be very comfortable with being in someone's way. Because there's there it, the aisles aren't big, but what you get is amazing, and the prices are up the right price. I'm noting that we are officially into well into our thirties, and that we are <laughs> upset about a grocery store. Look, it's so packed. I, I just, just want to shop in peace and not make eye contact with anybody. But there is always someone in my way, or I am in someone else's way. I was looking, I was reaching down to get something, and this man walked directly in front of me and then stood there on the phone with someone, <laughs> being like, they got lemon kind, they got, sorry, they got <laughs> rosemary. I was like, all right, this is fine. This is, I'll just wait and be polite. Um, I don't know what happens in other places that aren't the South when that happens, but I'm just supposed to sit there and be I like, I think you just go, excuse polite. me, can you move? Uh, right. If you're in the I'm, North. That's what I'm saying is that I know that people would react differently. Yeah. Not necessarily rudely, but differently. The, the Midwest where it's just, mm, let me just scooch on by you here. <laughs> that might've been what, where which that guy was from. The, which might be the right move. I feel right. Like. Cause it's it, not rude, but it does get shit moving it does if you do invade someone's personal space enough which is again you have to be very comfortable with being in someone's way if you invade someone's personal space enough they will usually get the hint that you're the alpha and they need to move (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh grocery stores guys am i right (laughs) um (laughs) uh but yeah so all that uh to say we had a great week yeah um yeah good a lot of fun, um, a lot of good times. So, but let's uh, break into the stories because yeah. I know that we both have a couple of long ones. Yeah. Um, let's. I don't know who's going first. I'm trying to recall, Stephen. Um, what was the last one we did? Florida man. I went first. You go first. Okay. Cool. Well, <laughs> I guess first let's talk about the drink. Yeah. That we have. 
Um, so we went a cocktail this time, and because we are double recording and we're trying to preserve ourselves, uh, we're doing a single cocktail this episode. Mm -hmm. But it comes with a fun history uh, background with it. Ooh! So I made a sidecar. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a cognac-based cocktail mm -hmm. with uh, orange liqueur, like Centro, mm -hmm. and lemon juice in it. Mm. So, cheers! Very Cit alcoholy, but also very citrusy. Yeah, I would probably. Hmm. I don't know if I put in too much lemon, or you know it, what would fucking murder this? Like if you had like some sparkling water. I mean, I can make it's lime. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, like, for next time, this is also oh. very good, but, like, if you, you, if you did, thinking, like, a sidecar and then put, like, in a sparkling element to yeah, it. Yeah, I'm wishing I would have thrown in that rosemary simple syrup that you made. Or thime, whatever uh, that was. I bet that would yeah. be killing here. <laughs> Excuse me. This cough is still sticking with me, guys. I'm working on it. Um, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, no, it's good. It's, I don't think I've ever had a sidecar. I've seen it on many menus, but I usually don't order it. This um, is, it's a very like old school cocktail. I feel I'm back in the old days, and yes. we will be for these stories. So yeah. um, I say old days, like the fifties, but still. Right. But yeah, so I wanted to make a sidecar mm -hmm. uh, specifically for the cognac in it. Mm -hmm. um, so again, when this airs, it'll be Black History Month, mm -hmm. uh, and I thought for my cocktails for this month, um, I'd select ones that were centered around cognac. Because it's a drink that is immensely popular within the black community in America. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, All right. And not just because of the song, Pass the Cavassier by Busta Rhymes. <laughs> I didn't know that's what Cavassier was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so right. Cavassier, Hennessy, all of those are cognacs. What? Yes. I did not know that. Now you know. Well, yeah. Well, that's the point of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it didn't get its start with Busta. Um, it's got much more history than that. So before the history we're covering today, I thought I'd do a mini one mm -hmm. um, on the history of cognac in the black community because I think it's really interesting. Uh, for starters, cognac is only made in the cognac region of France, much like France. champagne can only yeah. be made in the champagne region. Yeah. Uh, similar thing. Uh, it's inherently and iconically French. Uh, but nowadays, the French don't actually consume much of it. The French prefer scotch. Around 97% of the cognac created there is exported, and America is its top importer. <laughs> and of that, African Americans have the top percentage of consumer base. Well, it's pretty good, guys. And if uh, if I can recommend, if you're going to be drinking a sidecar, throw a little sparkling water on it. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe sometimes simple syrup. Make um, it a punch. Yeah. Uh, initially, cognac was a drink for the rich, stuffy old white people. Uh, and then, during both world wars, when African-American soldiers were stationed in France, oh, uh, right. they started drinking it there. Makes and sense. in France at this point, people of color were treated far better than they were oh in the United gosh. States. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, so differently. Yeah. I, 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 if they didn't have family back here, I assume they would not have come back, because yeah. why would you? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the relationship between product and consumer was strengthened uh, when jazz musicians sorry, musicians, traveled to France uh, where they were appreciated long before they were appreciated here in the States. Uh, for African-Americans at this time, cognac was a drink of the elite upper class, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and came from a place where their culture was embraced and celebrated instead of marginalized. The French have always been ahead of, a, a, well, I say us, everyone, basically. Yeah. And, like, so many things. And accepting of so many things. Yeah, like treating uh, people like people. It was. Yeah, I mean, well, in some ways they definitely were not. Um, yeah. But, like, just it, culturally, like, sexually. Hmm. Um, I mean, I know they were, like, Catholic, but, like, they were very, like... They weren't super staunch about it as the, like the Spanish or the yeah. or the the Scottish people were. I think the French um, are very casual. With yeah, it. they're yeah. and they're just so accepting of a, of a lot of things and just being chill. Make, <laughs> it makes sense that the term laissez-faire is French. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, so or laissez, I guess is how you say that. I have no idea. Eh, anyway, um. It also didn't help that the alternative here in the States available was predominantly whiskey. And whiskey had distinctly Confederate ties with um, brands like Rebel Yell. Yeah. It's not surprising that cognac left a better taste in their mouth. Yeah. Uh, French producers recognized the opportunity. And in the 1950s, the first alcohol ads in both Jet and Ebony magazine were by Hennessy. Since then, the four main cognac houses, Cabassier, Hennessy, Martel, and Remy Martin, uh, have targeted the American market with their advertising. And cognac producers are more accepting of modifications to the consumption of their beverage, unlike champagne producers. Yeah. Jay-Z famously drank cognac out of the cup part of his Grammy Award the night he won his first Grammy. <laughs> Conversely, the champagne company that produces Cristal refused to pay rapper- rappers for featuring the brand in their songs. Jay-Z called for a boycott of Crystal. Good. So, in 2013, uh, the very French town of Cognac Mm -hmm. featured a photographer who exclusively did hip-hop photography. And the Cognac House Martel uh, has sponsored the American Blues Festival for the last 20-ish years. And even has busts of what we consider to be obscure blues musicians. Mm -hmm. In their headquarters in France. But they're American musicians. Oh, I like that. Um, anyway, I just think the relationship between Cognac and the African-American community is really interesting. So I, I thought I would use well, Cognac in you. a cocktail today. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, anyway, and it's, it's not half bad. I would prefer it to be a hair sweeter, but I also may have put, I may have been aggressive with my lemon juice usage. That's fine. I like lemons, as we've discussed <laughs> last podcast. <laughs> I gotta not do that when I'm taking a drink. I'm sorry. Um, okay. So, let's talk about Harry Tyson Moore. He was born in 1905 in Houston, Florida, which is like the midpoint almost between Jacksonville and Tallahassee. Uh, and his father worked for actually the same rail company that my grandpa worked for, uh, for a while. Uh, the Seaboard Air Line Railroad. Uh, But his father passed away when he was nine years old. Uh, His mother, I believe her name was Rosa, I forgot to write it down. Uh, Ruth or Rosa, I feel like it was Rosa, uh, made ends meet by running a small store out of the front of her house and by picking cotton. However, times were hard for her. And in 1915, she sent her only son to go live with his aunts in Jacksonville. The three of his aunts were roommates in a house, and they raised him as their own. And uh, the Jacksonville community was a city with a lot of black culture. This was only 50 years after the abolition of slavery. 
and this community was successful and independent and proud. Uh, his aunts were well-educated. One was a nurse, and two of them were teachers, and they were great influences on him. Three years later, he moved back home with his mom and enrolled in the Florida Memorial College's high school program. Uh, he excelled in school and was nicknamed Doc by his peers. Uh, and at 19, he graduated with his teaching degree, and he accepted a position in Cocoa, Florida, teaching in Brevard County. Okay. And it's here that he meets Harriet, and I sincerely hope they went by Harry and Harry. <laughs> uh, Harriet was scandalously three years older than oh. Harry, uh, 23 to his 20 when they met. She was also a teacher and sold insurance on the side because do we ever pay teachers enough? No, we do not. No, never have, never. Hopefully no. we will. Hopefully, Hopefully we will. One day. Um, anyway, the two fell in love and were married less than a year later after their meeting. Uh, they were married on Christmas Day in 1926. Uh, what I would like to call Harry and Harry. Uh, <laughs> went back to school. They both obtained bachelor's degrees at Bethune-Cookman, which is a historically black college in Daytona. And the newlyweds uh, moved in with the bride's parents until they were able to have their own house built. They moved to Mims, Florida, uh, which is just outside of Titusville, which is Michael's hometown. Mm-hmm. I've been to Mims. There's one a whole lot there, to yep. be honest with you. They're, yeah. Still no. And Titusville has the Space Center. Yeah. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody works there. It did just get a Chipotle, <laughs> though, so that's exciting. Oh. Yeah. Big, I don't. Big business. I mean, Yeah. <laughs> But did they have a most? <laughs> um, Harry, oh, that's people get so upset about that. Uh, well, I'm firmly in the most camp. Personally. Same. Sorry, guys. Sorry to disappoint all of our listeners. Uh, Harry Moore was prim- or Harry T. Moore. Apparently, he's known as Harry T. Moore. When I was writing okay. this, I just called him Harry. <laughs> <All right. laughs> uh, Harry was promoted to principal. Uh, this is the title. I don't like this name. I cannot change the title of something past, though. Yeah. Sorry. He was promoted to principal of the Titusville Colored School, uh, where he taught ninth grade in addition to his principal duties. In 1928, uh, the two welcomed their first daughter, Annie Rosalie, who they nicknamed Peaches. Aww. And two years later, they welcomed their baby girl, Juanita Evangeline. Which I think is just Evangeline. The best name. Such a good name. A name. I love that name. It's so good. I know. Um, Juanita's also good, but Evangeline is like yeah. on the tippy top of But names. like Juanita Evangeline just right. Like, it's perfect. Yes. Good name. Good name, guys. Um, between pregnancies, Harriet went to teach at the Mims Colored School. Again, I don't like it, but yeah, I, I can't change the title of the school. I'm sorry. Uh, in 1934, Harry and Harry started uh, Brevard's county chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or better known as the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Harry went on to help start charter or chapters all across the state, uh, worked tirelessly to increase registration for the NAACP, and supported housing and education initiatives. He filed lawsuits about voting registration issues and fought for equal pay for teachers of color, even though the schools were segregated. In retaliation, both Harry and Harriet were fired from their teaching positions. Uh, the sort of economic retaliation was extremely common in the South at this point to discourage activism. 
Um, so, yeah. you know, you take away people's livelihood, they don't have yeah the time or the capacity to yeah. be Fight active. Back. Yeah. yeah, you keep them poor, and then yeah. there's... They don't have time to do anything else. Oh my gosh. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, So are you saying that like today, like right now, that's still in play? What? Yeah. Um, That's not to say that uh, we should always associate black people with being poor. What I'm saying is uh, white people have notoriously, uh, (laughs) people in power have notoriously tried to keep black people in, in a poor place so that they literally can't do anything yeah if you're worried how you're gonna put food on your table yeah, you're not really worried about time much else to to be an activist for your rights um yep. so yeah so uh but none of this deterred harry he ended up accepting a paid position with the naacp and kept pushing forward in 1944 he started the progressive voters league after a supreme court ruling that same year which determined that quote white primaries where only white people were allowed to vote in the primary elections were unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. That was in 1944. Yeah. For everyone who is under the impression that, like, oh, racism ended when slavery ended. Yeah. That was 1944. Mm-hmm. That was only 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. No, wait. Yeah. 79 years ago. Mm-hmm. Through the efforts of Harry and his peers, they were able to get 31% of eligible black voters registered to vote, which was higher than any other state at the time. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Keep in mind, this was 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. Today in Florida, approximately 65% of eligible black voters are eligible to, or are registered to vote, uh, which is slightly less than the national average of 69%. Uh, also, just a side note, overall, the national average is 72.7% across everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not registered to vote, stop what you're doing. Pause this. Yes, please. Go to registertovoteflorida.gov or whatever the site is for your state. Register to vote. Click the box for mail-in ballots. Aggressively participate in every election you can. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so he's like the first iteration of Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. who spearheaded effectively this same campaign in Georgia, mm-hmm. like the most recent two yep. election cycles. Yep. She because sure did. Because when you can engage black voters, shit changes. Yeah. I, again, a thing that other people have also found out. Um, yeah, like people are to, powerful and yeah. their ability to vote speaks volumes and that's why yes. people spend so much time trying to disenfranchise their vote. And not yeah. allow them to vote. Different and it's, voting restrictions, like different yeah. gerrymandering, um, <laughs> closing polls yeah. uh, before people can get there. Not allowing um, people to distribute water to people on the line. Yeah, and not polls. being able to go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, so like, <laughs> you it's, know, different ways that you can disenfranchise uh, people who you don't want to speak or have that voice. Um, we should stop doing that. Yeah, probably. Um, so, all of us uh, as a nation. You know, vote. The end. So, Harry Timor is having all of this success in the face of so many challenges and so much racism. He and his wife seem unstoppable, so of course he gains unwanted attention as well. The KKK takes notice of him and starts harassing him, but again, he is not deterred. In 1949, four black men 
were accused of raping a white woman in Groveland, Florida. Uh, Groveland is just west of Orlando. One of the men, Ernest Thomas, attempted to flee the county and was lynched. The other three men were taken into custody. A mob of 400 white men showed up at the jail and demanded that the sheriff, Sheriff McCall, hand the men over to be lynched. He declined. Uh, the mob responded by rioting through the town. They tore down buildings and burned down the black-owned businesses in town. McCall requested that the governor send over the National Guard, and it took them six days to restore order. Uh, two of the arrests, uh, sorry, two of the arrested men were beaten while in custody and forced to make confessions. Um, and the three men were all convicted by an all-white jury. Uh, okay. Wow. Yeah, again, so we kind of just, I forget which episode it was on, but we kind of discussed, like, the role that the white woman's virtue has played in how... Yeah, and how it's used to <laughs> this, ruin for this, for this, for this, yeah. this. This exact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say three men, one of them was 16, so I do mean to say two men and a child. Yeah. He was a child, and at 16 years old, Charles Greenlee was sentenced to life in prison. There are two older men, Sam Shepard and Walter Irving. Uh, they were both sentenced to death. Yeah. Which, insane. It's not a jury of their peers. And no. now, the executive director of the Florida NAACP, Harry T. Moore, led the campaign to get these men appeals for what was his, and in my opinion, an unfair trial. Uh, also my opinion. I would say the official opinion of it this is, podcast. It's the official opinion of this podcast uh, that the Groveland Four were unfairly sentenced. Yes. And, uh, in April of 1951, a legal team headed by Thurgood Marshall uh, won an appeal in Shepard and Irving's case before the U.S. Supreme Court, so they also deemed it an unfair trial, and I guess their opinion probably matters the most. I guess it... I guess it's, <laughs> it's bigger like, It's bigger than ours. <laughs> it's like the U.S. Supreme Court, and then Harry Moore, and then this podcast, yeah. <laughs> and then the rest of you. <laughs> um, side note, third good... Third good I'm sorry, y'all. Side note. Thurgood Marshall would later go on to become the Supreme Court's first African American justice in 1967 and serve until 1991. Uh, Both Shepard and Irving were granted new trials, um, and Sheriff McCall was responsible for transporting the men to their new trial Uh, in 1951. Okay. During this transport, uh, McCall claimed that he got a flat tire, and while in handcuffs, both men attacked him in an attempt to escape. He shot them both. What the fuck? Okay, I mean, like, look, I'm Like, he refused to hand them over for the lynching, and then when they were granted <coughs> new trials, <clears throat> yeah, he shoots them both. Yeah, so, um, I say what the fuck, like, I have some incredulity here but like it's i know this isn't shouldn't be it shouldn't be shocking it's just it's just so fucking ridiculous yeah. that 
That's ridiculous. It's tragic. I know. It's the past. And, like, it, it, it's, like, a thing. Like, you but should, it's not but that it, far past. No, it's not. It's not it's that not far that past. It's not that far past. And, honestly, it's, it's the shooting of black men in custody is still happening. Um, but. We are five years out, I think. Ooh, seven years. Can I count? We're seven years out from my dad's lifetime. Yeah. It's just. It, in, I know in you're, our, when you're in our viewing, towns, like, exactly. In the, this here, is, yeah, this it's, is an hour maybe yeah. from our house. It just coming from a, his, a history podcast standpoint, right? Where I'm like, look, trying to look through a lens of like what people thought back then, and by back then, I know it's really not that long ago. Like it's, it's truly just, it's not. It's just, I I cannot. <laughs> I, it's, all right, yeah, no, I just, obviously, I object. Yeah, Um, that's fair. Yeah. We, we, yeah, it's, I, it's horrifying. Yeah. And. That's, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not shocked. I'm horrified. Um. Yeah. So, he shot them both. Shepard, unfortunately, died at the scene, but Irving survived. Uh, he later told both the NAACP and the FBI that the sheriff shot them both in cold blood. Harry Timor called for Sheriff McCall to be indicted for murder and called on the governor to suspend him as sheriff. He was, and later, an all-white jury would clear McCall of all charges and rule Shepard's death justified. Okay, well, that part shouldn't be shocking to anybody because we're definitely still doing that part. Yep. We are Definitely still letting uh, law enforcement off for shooting uh, black men in custody. Yes. Or just, you know, murdering them some way. Yes. So that shouldn't, yeah. Still horrifying, though. Um, six weeks later, on Christmas Day, Harry and Harriet Moore were celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. That night, they went to bed, and a bomb went off under their house. It had been placed beneath the floor of their bedroom. The two were rushed to the hospital. However, their house was in Mims, and the closest hospital in Titusville refused to accept people of color as patients. The ambulance had to go 30 miles to Sanford to reach the closest hospital that would care for people of color. Wow. Interesting that you would say Sanford, um, a place that is also not that well known for how they treat crimes against the black community, considering that is exactly where Trayvon Martin was shot mm-hmm. and murdered. And um pretty sure that we let uh that guy go too. We we did. We did. we did. I wasn't on the fucking jury. I was too young, I think. Yeah. Maybe I wasn't. I don't know, this was quite some time ago. Uh but yeah. yeah. But uh, uh yeah, Sanford, we as a people. But they had the, the closest hospital that was willing to accept <laughs> and treat people because uh... they were from when did they, I mean, I don't expect you to know this, but when the fuzzuck f- did they start taking the Hippocratic Oath? Before or I guess, then. I guess if you don't see them as people, I guess. That. Yeah. I, all right. <clears throat> that. All right. Look, I don't, I don't know what to say, guys. Obviously, you know, I, I, again, I object. Yeah. Um. Harry T. Moore died on the way to the hospital. He didn't make it. His wife, Harriet, succumbed to her injuries nine days later. So, he died on his 25th wedding anniversary. 
The murder of Harry and Harriet Moore uh, marked the first murder of the civil rights movement. He was the first NAACP official to be assassinated, unfortunately not the last. Mm. Their murders were caught, uh, they caught national media attention, sparked outcry from the United Nations. The NAACP held a fundraiser in Madison Square Gardens. Uh, where the poet Langston Hughes read the poem, uh, The Ballad of Harry Moore. The, the whole poem will be posted in our show notes, but in the end, it, it ends by saying, uh, In his heart is only love for all the human race. I will say, um, there is a character limit in our show notes, so if we can't post the whole poem there, we, we will post link a link it. to it. Yes. yes. So, um, so, uh, sorry. Can't start that over because I got. No, it's mm. fine. That's why I was like, yeah, just take your time. It's, it's such a, it's yeah. a subject. It's a subject. In his heart is only love for all the human race, and all he wants is for every man to have his rightful place. In this, he says, "Our Harry Moore from the grave he cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold. For freedom never dies." <clears throat> The state of Florida requested the FBI handle the case. I can see why they would want that, but I don't know how much better it's going to be. The FBI determined that the KKK was responsible, and they had a list of suspects. They indicted seven Klansmen for similar crimes, uh, hoping they would be able to get them to talk about the Moore case. Mm -hmm. But no one cracked, and all indictments were dropped. In 1953, two years later, the case was closed by the FBI. The case has been reopened three times. In 1978, by Brevard County. In 1991, by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And in 2005, by Charlie Crist. Entirely coincidentally, this was six weeks before an election and definitely not an attempt at a white Republican to garner support among black voters in the community. <laughs> Crist held a press conference uh, claiming to have solved the case. Did he? I don't remember. He <laughs> identified four Klansmen, all since deceased, as the perps. Oh, all right. I almost yeah. don't even want to say their names because fuck them for being Klansmen, uh, yeah, regardless of whether yeah. or not they committed this specific crime. Mm -hmm. But their names, for the sake of completeness, are Earl Brooklyn, Tillman Belvin, which is a dumb fucking name, <laughs> Joseph Copps, and Edward Spivey. May you all rot in hell. Yeah. Critics of Christ's antics include scholars, the, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and newspapers far and wide saying it was just a publicity stunt to get votes. I mean, that's probably true. Um, but enough about those idiots. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I mean, it's, it's rough. Yeah. I would like to take a moment, though, to consider, because, I mean, technically, I mean, they, they, how to say, how to say, um... So, obviously, we're all part of the same human people, but, yes. like, of, of as far as groups, like, I'm not a, y'all, I'm not a black person, um, and I, I want, like, I want to hurt somebody for, like, mm -hmm. just hearing that, and I'm just thinking about so no the courage that it takes for somebody, for many, many, and we will cover some of them, uh, later on this month, um, like the courage to be nonviolent mm -hmm. in in 
in the face of that kind of violence. Like, Pong... Their house was blown up and no one was arrested or prosecuted for yeah. it. Yeah. And that happened a lot. Like, the, yeah, the crimes Alabama, against black like, Americans just consistently yeah. ignored by the police. Mostly <laughs> Klan was in the police Yeah, terms. and Klansmen, but, so, like, throughout, I think it was Alabama, it was, like, insane. Like, the amount of bombings that occurred whenever a black person would move to a community that wasn't, quote, yeah. theirs. Uh, yeah. Um, so, and I just can't imagine the courage that it takes to be, like, collected and calm and to react in a non-violent way to this. Yeah, like, I'm here for the Martin Luther Kings of the world. Like, I appreciate that and their, like, the, the peaceful And the many people that were like that around yeah. him. Uh, like, but also, I do not fault Malcolm X. No. Like, I nope. get it. I fucking get it. Not like, at all. Not at all. I'm sorry. Like, okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so, yes, I want to acknowledge, like, the courage finally. that it takes to be nonviolent in, in the face of this. But also, um, if that's not your choice. I also get violence. I also totally understand violence. Um, I get I get that, too. Yeah. Um, not that I condone violence. Obviously, that's not the opinion of this podcast. However, um... I cannot. I mm, I can't understand because it's not me. Uh, but I I can see where uh you would get so fucking frustrated and angry, but also just, and horrified to where you want to burn everything to the ground. Absolutely, but also <laughs> just the I don't know the perseverance to like watch. So this man was the top most person in the NAACP uh-huh. in Florida. Uh-huh. And he was killed on his wedding anniversary on Christmas Day. Yeah. By a bomb. Mm-hmm. And they have two children in this house. Yeah. But they were, I remember they were okay because it the, was under the, the daughter's bedroom. Yeah. yeah. But they have two children in this house. They are bombed and no one gets prosecuted. No. No one gets no. prosecuted for this. There is zero justice for no. this man or this family, and or, or and his wife. Like she was also amazing. Mm-hmm. But I not to mention I I I will go ahead and assume that was not the last crime that the person or persons uh, committed oh, against. I'm sure. Yeah. So the color. men who they named Chris named, which mm-hmm. I don't know here or yeah. there whether what happened or not, but he. Um, they all had, like, notoriously violent crimes associated with them. Oh, yeah. Like, well, like yeah. Horrifically makes violent. Sense. Um, yeah. But, uh, anyway, enough about those idiots. Um, in 1952, I just want to talk about the accolades that they have received. Yeah. Posthumously. Um, Harry Moore, or Harry T. Moore, I don't know, Harry, <laughs> uh, was posthumously awarded uh, the Spring Iron Medal by the NAACP. Uh, which is an outstanding achievement by an African-American. The Brevard County named its Justice Center after the Moors. And in 2004, it made the site of their old home a memorial park. The Moors have two roads named after them uh, and a post office, which, random. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, I mean, sure. Um, and in 2013, the couple was inducted into the Civil Rights Hall of Fame. Both of Moore's daughters, uh, Annie Rosalie and Juanita Evangeline, would go on to obtain bachelor's degrees from Bethune-Cookman, like their parents. Uh, 
uh, Annie died in 1972 at the age of 44, and Juanita died in 2015 at the age of 85. So they did she even get to see Chris, like, name the people? I mean, may or may not have done it. In but... 2015, she would have. Okay. That would well, have been in 2006. I'm so. interested. I wonder how she felt about that. I'm sure it was awful for her. Yeah, I mean, it, it's bringing up a lot of things. I don't know if she would have felt like some closure if she just would have, if, you know, but or like, she would have just you... been like a fucking publicity stunt. Because again, oh, other sure. people have understood the power of the black vote. Yep. Um, so much Chris power in, it, in your voice. Democrat, which is interesting, but, or is, I think, successful. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, the fuck. All right. So, anyway. again, I have a long one too. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. I know it's hard to get through, and yeah. even harder for the people who go through it. Um, and it, yeah, yeah. Michael suggested that one because it was yeah, his it's hometown. right from where he is. It's yeah, literally I, his hometown, I, which is not a proud thing. I stayed overnight in Mims one time. I can tell you, it's fucking still sketch. Still sketch. Um. <laughs> But also, okay. if you're there, maybe go see. I wonder if we can like go to that park the next time we're visiting. Is it? Yeah, we should. Yeah. I'm including myself. In here. All right. Well, you're um, welcome to come. <laughs> um, okay. So, quick note on how I'm approaching the Black History Month series. Um, very much want to do right by the Black American community during the series. As a white person, I may fuck up at some point and may say something insensitive because I may, it may be something I just never thought about, or I just may not realize that what I said was insensitive. None of it will be on purpose. Um, but if you, if you, anyone, feel free to check me. If you hear something, if just get, send a That's comment, send an email. Yeah. And in, this doesn't just, it's not just for Black History Month either, ever, but uh, specifically for this month. We um, welcome corrections. Yes. Um, it's uncomfortable, but it's how change occurs. We talk, we learn, we change. Um, I will also say, though, um, that there may be some quotes or things I read during this series. Uh, not going to include any profanity. Um, but what I may say is still sickening to hear nonetheless. But it is America's history. Like it or not, it's how the country treated people of color for a long time. Still doing it some places. Um, and quite honestly, not as not as much as changed as it should have by now. Um, and there are a lot of things that white Americans never knew about and, or never had to worry about that wasn't covered in your history books. And it's things we should know. And once we know them, we shouldn't forget them. So with that, let's crack into my first topic of black history month, sundown towns. Oof. Yes. Uh, now, I didn't know about Sundown Towns until I was watching a show called Lovecraft Country. Same! Mm -hmm. It was a very good show, but sadly it was cancelled. Um, but basically, in the first episode, called Sundown, um, a man and his uncle and his lady friend are going on a trip uh, to find this guy's dad. Um, this the... is another one of those things that you see in popular culture and fiction. <laughs> and at least for me, like the layman, thought that was fiction yeah like genuinely thought it was not yeah. real mm -hmm. and then i google it and then, and then like, i assume people fuck. like better educated than me were like yeah okay you're an idiot but yeah i had I no idea maybe but, you know frankly this is covered in history yeah maybe it's just the florida public education system that could be it uh, i don't know if everybody else knows it everywhere else or knew about it or maybe you just know about it because you 
live in a sundown town, um, yeah. which there are many, which I will get into. But yeah, um, tell us about it. And um, I hope, you know, if you are learning this for the first time, you're also a pulp. Yeah. Um, but uh, so basically the uncle in the story, uh, he has a job in which he publishes a guide on establishments that were known to be safe for African-American travelers to stop. This part of the story was actually based off a real-life guide for black citizens called The Green Book. The Green Book was published from 1936 to 1966, which a postal, postal worker from Harlem, Victor H. Green, wrote after he compiled a list of hotels, guest houses, service stations, drug stores, taverns, barbershops, and restaurants that served black travelers. Which is... I can't imagine... And, like, I'm, okay, so, like, I understand it from the female's perspective of, like, there are certain places you wouldn't walk in alone mm -hmm. by yourself, period, right? Yeah. Usually you can tell by the look of it. For these, for this, you cannot. Right. And then just to be a person of color and genuinely not have any reference for that. Like, <laughs> well, that's not, why, the, well, that's why no, you have, made it. I guess you literally have a reference guy yeah. made for you. But that's so terrifying to not know if you're going to pull in and then be lynched for having the audacity to be somewhere after the sun goes down. Yeah. Well, or if you're allowed to stay in this hotel or if you're allowed to walk into this drugstore. Yeah. Insanity. Anyway, sorry, yeah. go on. Okay. At its height of popularity, the Green Book was used by two million people. The introduction to this book read, quote, There will be a day, sometime in the near future, when this guide will not have to be published. That is, when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. It will be a great day for us to, to suspend this publication, for then we can go wherever we please and without embarrassment. Ugh. Okay. Um, they should not be embarrassed. To be. Yeah, exactly. Like um, someone should be embarrassed in that scenario. And yeah, it's not, not them. Uh, but later on in the episode, the three end up stopping in a diner, and it's not too long before they realize they were indeed in a place that was hostile to people of color. Uh, they make a quick getaway, but are pulled over by a local policeman who informs them that they are in fact not just in a sundown town, but in a sundown county, and the sun was setting. The officer tells them not to go over the speed limit, though, or he'll have to pull them over again. So the trio drives away and the cop follows them and the speed limit is like 30 miles per hour or something. And the tension that's built during that scene is so terrible. And yes, I know it's just a show, uh, but it gives you an inkling, a peek, a tiny glimpse into the stress people of color could face in America just for being in the wrong place Terror. and living in their skin. Um, and as much as I would prefer sundown towns to only be something Lovecraft imagined for one of his stories, they were very, very real. Um, so let's take a look at where it began. Uh, the earliest legal restrictions on the nighttime activity and movements of African Americans and other ethnic minorities, because it did affect other ethnic minorities, but for the purposes of this month, we're looking specifically at African Americans. Um, but it dates back to the colonial area, uh, or sorry, era, because America was whites only from the start, except it wasn't. Uh, but I guess that's a very inconvenient fact. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the General Court and legislate, uh, Legislative Assembly of New Hampshire passed in 1714. Quote, an act to prevent disorders in the night. The act stated, and I will say this again, this is language from 1714. You will never hear me using these words outside of this context, and I hate saying it. 
But that act said, um, whereas great disorders, insolences, and burglaries are oft times raised and committed in the night by Indian, Negro, and mulatto servants and slaves to the disquiet and hurt of Her Majesty's subjects. <laughs> no Indian, Negro, or mulatto is to be from home after nine o'clock. And I feel like I need mouthwash. Um, Notice. We don't have mouthwash, but there is. Yeah, there is. Very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. If you need to cleanse your palate from all this bullshit, exactly. Can I recommend cognac? Um, Yeah. Uh, Notices emphasizing and reaffirming the curfew were published in the New Hampshire Gazette in 1764 and 1771. Following the end of the Reconstruction Era, aka after the American Civil War. Thousands of towns and counties across the United, the United States became sundown towns as part of Jim Crow laws and other segregationist practices. In most cases, this was official town policy. In others, the policy was enforced through intimidation, including intimidation by law enforcement officers. In 1844, Oregon, uh, sorry, just getting mad at Oregon for no reason. Fuck I know you, you guys are the same now. It's very different people there now, I think, I hope. Oh, there's a lot of wilderness there. I don't know. You guys I be the... Said what tell, I said. tell us, Oregon. No, um, no. I'm not changing... Fuck you, Oregon. <laughs> I've played your trail. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> oh. I die of dysentery every goddamn oh, time. Uh, in 1844, Oregon had banned slavery and banned African Americans from the territory altogether. Oh, well... Yeah, no. Mm. Those who failed to leave were subject to the Peter Burnett Lash Law. Oh. Named for provisional Supreme Judge Peter Burnett, which gave Oregon the legal right to lash African Americans for being in the state. While no one was so ever existing. reportedly lashed under the law, it was quickly amended to replace lashing with forced labor. So slavery. Yep, that's the one. Um, other places also looked to laws and legislation to restrict black people from residing within cities, towns, and states. In 1853... 1853, all black people were banned from entering the state of Indiana. Those who were caught in the state and unable to pay the fine were punished by being re-enslaved and sold at auction. What? 1853. Um, similar bans on all black migration were passed in Michigan, Ohio, and Iowa. In Louisville, Kentucky, the mayor proposed a law in 1911 that would restrict black people from owning property in certain parts of the city. The city ordinance reached public attention when it was challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court in Buchanan v. Worley in 1917. Ultimately, what area is that in? I'm sorry? Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Ultimately, the court decided that the laws passed in Louisville were unconstitutional, which set the legal precedent uh, that similar laws could not exist or be passed in the future. Sadly, this legal victory did not stop towns from becoming sundown towns. City planners and real estate companies used their power and authority to ensure that white communities stayed white and black communities stayed black. Redlining. <laughs> um, and Which though, is a whole yeah. insane practice in itself. Maybe that's what I'll do next. Yeah. Black History Month. But. And though... Legally, a state couldn't prohibit black people from living there. Sundown towns were still de facto in many areas of the U.S. Um, the ways to announce the enforced uh, racial restrictions varied across the country. 
um, in the most blatant form were signs posted at the city limits. One in Alex, Arkansas's, it was Arkansas's, <laughs> Arkansas, Arkansas, in Alex, Ar- I'm glad I made fun of that fucking name. Um, in Fuck Alex, you, Arkansas. We don't like you either. Because uh, of what that says on this poster. Um, one in Alex, Arkansas in the 1930s read, quote, N-word, don't let the song go down You in Alex. Others stated... I'm sorry, that's a poster? That was a billboard <laughs> on the city <laughs> limit mind. of Alex. Yeah, no, that's better. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, others stated, quote, whites only after dark. In the 1940s, Ebon, Oklahoma promoted itself on postcards with the slogan, quote, a good place to live, no Negroes. The town of Mina, Arkansas. I feel like fuck that's you again, just Arkansas. Like Trump's dream. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. no shit. Advertise... Not trying to turn this political, but uh... Sorry. Go on. Yeah, I'm I just, I almost, qu- I almost took this this paragraph out, but I, I just. No, no this is what important. it was. It's important, and it, it was. This a, is. It was a truth for a lot of people. This at that is time. the terror that you could see. Like you're just fucking driving yeah. through a fucking town, and that's what you fucking see just and because of just, your skin, which it's is maddening. Okay, um, sorry. The town of Mina, Arkansas, advertised itself by posting, "Quote: Cool summers, mild winters, no blizzards, no negroes." <sighs> Uh, sundown town restrictions were probably unsurprisingly for everyone um, insured by violence. African Americans who were found in sundown towns even during the daytime sometimes experienced harassment threats, arrest, and beatings. It was not uncommon for black people driving through these communities to be followed by the police or local residents to the city limits. In some cases, hostility towards African Americans resulted in mob executions. One such instance was the lynching of two black teenagers in Marion, Indiana, Indiana, in 1930. The incident resulted in the town's 200 black residents moving away. Um, and you might be starting to recognize a pattern here as well. <laughs> I've talked about mostly northern states so far: yeah. Oregon, Michigan, Ohio, Iowa, and Indiana. Most of the sundown towns were found in the West and Midwest, not the South. Uh, the thing is, after the Civil War ended, and African Americans could move away from the South to find new opportunities and escape racism, um, white people in the North felt that their way of life was being threatened by the increased minority populations moving into their neighborhoods, and racial tensions started to build. Yeah, so that's something that, like, even today, I think is still prevalent that Mm -hmm. shocked me. So the first time I uh, was dating (coughs) a guy, I went home with him to, like, meet his parents and stuff Mm -hmm. up north. Mm -hmm. Um, I was meeting his family, and we go to a mall, and his mom let rip some of the most racist commentary Mm -hmm. I have ever fucking heard and to be clear i am from middle of the state florida <laughs> yeah like inland where i you're, was you're gonna hear a lot of casual racism i'm 30 minutes from groveland is my hometown uh-huh and that to me is insane because i was un- i was under the impression all of these years that the south had the fucking lock on being shitty and racist Like, I thought that was our brand. I thought that was our (laughs) shit brand that we coined and, like, went 
So sorry. Please sorry. go. I thought that was our shitty stuff that we coined and like went to war over, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was in the South and that we were just the trash people down here. And then I went to Detroit, Michigan Mm -hmm. and heard, well, not exactly Detroit, but Detroit adjacent, hearing the shit leave this one's up casually. Yeah. Casually. I was like like, very comfortable in what they're saying. Oh, too comfortable for how brittle her fucking bones were. Uh-huh. But, <laughs> like, uh-uh. Um, no. Yeah. But I... It turns out I that, heard the shit yeah. one's up, and I was just, like, I didn't... And me now probably would have reacted differently. Like, ooh, I don't know who we're... I would like to think that I would say something along the lines of, like, oh, I don't know who we're talking to. Like, that it's not me. Mm-hmm. But yeah. me um, yeah. being the new girlfriend in my 20s didn't know how to react, didn't know that... I'd be like, that's fucking inappropriate. What the fuck did you just say? Yeah. Becky... Her name wasn't Becky, but still. Yeah. And and it that's was, and that's you know. But and anyway, that's sorry, that was something that I had to learn in Michigan was that like we don't have the lock on racism down here. Like yeah, we do, but we don't. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just the South because in my head, you know, the North was mm-hmm. happy and everyone was just treated everyone like people. Yeah. And no. then down here, we were just exceptionally shitty, and it turns out. That's not the case, and that's still not the case today. No. That's fucking um, devastating. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. No, you're fine. <sighs> Many white citizens harass minorities to keep them out of their cities, or at least certain parts of the cities. This often boiled over into violence, sometimes extreme violence, uh, such as the 1943 Detroit race riot. Um, in 1954, when the Supreme Court ruled segregation of schools was unconstitutional, um, in Brown versus Board of Education, it's possible this caused some municipalities in the South to become sundown towns. Missouri, Tennessee, and Kentucky saw drastic drops in African American populations living in those states after the Supreme Court ruling because if the African American population was run off and couldn't live there, they couldn't go to school with white children. Um, and although it is difficult to make an accurate count, historian, historians estimate. That there were up to 10,000 sundown towns in the United States between 1890 and 1960, which is our parents' lifetime. 10,000. Yeah, at least. Um, And you know, like, so 1960 is when probably the civil rights starts kicking off. Yeah. That's not when it ends. No. That's not when it ends. That's when it ends on paper. That's not when it ends. Yeah. Um, Also, I want to tell the story. Of another crime that took place in a sundown town because I think it's important. And I'm not going to tell just the story of the crime uh, because I, I really want to focus on the fact that these things were happening to real people. Um, people that could still be alive today. Um, it's, it's not that fucking long ago. Um, and it's not just numbers and facts. Uh, so I'm going to start at the beginning for this one. Um... Carol Jenkins was born in Franklin, Indiana. Indiana, by the way, guys. Remember, keep in mind where Indiana is. It's not in the fucking South. Um, Her mother divorced uh, Carol's father when Carol was a baby, but remarried to Paul Davis when Carol was a toddler. And he raised Carol like she was his own child. Um, Carol had aspirations to become a model in Chicago. So after graduating high school, she got a job with Ford Motor Company and started saving and paying her own way through life. She worked at Ford until a worker's strike, and she looked for other work to fill in the gap while the strike was in effect. 
She found work working for Collier's, where she was a door-to-door saleswoman for selling encyclopedias. <gasps> oh, I just realized the story you're telling. Yeah. It's so terrible. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, I just... On oh, it's so terrible. September 16th, 1968, 20-year-old Carol and three other co-workers, two white men and one other black woman... Got a late start in traveling to get to, and I don't know how to say this, it's in Indiana. It looks like it's French, though, which historically I've had trouble with. Uh, Vincennes or Vincennes? I don't know. I think it's Vincennes. In Vincennes, Indiana. Um, to begin a round. Also, you're, you're, historically, you're the one with the better French pronunciation. <laughs> um, Indiana, but still Indiana. But I think I had... Uh, a family friend from near that area. Okay. And I think it's Vincent S, but I could All right. be wrong. That works for me. Um, if you're from Indiana and you'd like to correct us, feel free to let us know. Yeah. Um, so they were on their way there to begin a paper route to sell, not paper route, uh, begin a route to sell uh, encyclopedias. Uh, because of the late start, though, they stopped at a closer town around 4.30 p.m., which happened to be Martinsville, Indiana. Martinsville was known to be a sundown town, but it's possible no one in the car knew this or it's possible Carol did know, but didn't say anything because it was her first day of work and her supervisor was one of the men in the car. The four got out and planned to meet up at a gas station around 10, with the two men going out on their own and Carol and the other woman going in another direction. The two women stayed together for a while before separating on their route. Around 7.30, Carol was walking on her route when a dark sedan pulled up next to Carol and began following her. The passengers began yelling at her, but she couldn't figure out what it was they were saying. Carol goes up to the next house and knocks on the door, and Don and Norma Neal answer. Carol tells them she's really frightened, and she tells them what happened. The couple asked Carol inside, while Don went outside to look for the car that had been harassing Carol. Uh, but Don couldn't find the black sedan that matched Carol's description, but he did see a unfamiliar light-colored sedan uh, that was parked near his house. The car's parking lights were on, but he couldn't see the occupants. He the occupants. He got close enough. He could see the license number. He took a mental note of it. And as he's walking back to his house, the car drives away. Uh, the Neals called the Martinsville Police Department, who sent an officer, who basically just took Carol's account of what happened and left. Uh, Norma Neal drove. Effective police work. Yeah. Drove Carol around the neighborhood for a while to see if she could find one of her co-workers so they could stick together for the rest of their route, but they couldn't find them. The Neals told Carol, or asked Carol, to stay with them until it was time for her to meet her co-workers at the gas station at 10, and they would drive her to the gas station. But Carol said that she had been a bother long enough, and she left the Neals home to go into the now rainy night to continue her route. I'd like to pause and take a moment to say... Uh, if you don't listen to the My Favorite Murder podcast, uh, we're just going to steal their quote real quick and say, fuck politeness. <laughs> yeah. And stay where you feel safe. But also, oh my I God, the I... terror this woman felt. Yeah. Like. Yeah. And then also just, but also the pride to not, you know, like they're not going to, no yeah. one's going to make her feel scared to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So she leaves the Neal's home around 8 o'clock that evening. About an hour later, and 10 blocks away from the Neal's home, a teenage boy finds Carol's collapsed body on the sidewalk. He ran to a nearby restaurant to call the police. 
Carol was alive when the police arrived, but she died soon after an ambulance took her to the Morgan County Hospital. After removing Carol's brown wool jacket and her white turtleneck sweater, it was revealed that Carol had sustained a single stab wound on the left side of her chest. The Martinsville Police Department, having a long history of Klan in its ranks, employed no detective-grade personnel, so the county sheriff and the Indiana State Police were called in, but it turned out to be too late. The crime scene had not been secured, mainly because it wasn't clear originally that a crime uh, had occurred until Carol was examined in the hospital. Don Custer, the first state police detective to work on the case, said that when he arrived, quote, there were about 50 people hanging around the crime scene. One of them came up and handed me a pair of glasses and said, I think these are her glasses. Somebody else handed me her notebook. With no security crime scene. <laughs> the Neals, after hearing of Carol's murder, tracked down the dark-colored sedan that had been following Carol. Um, which, God bless this couple. Um, the teenage driver uh, and a friend admitted to having followed Carol, but denied yelling at her. Uh, the police determined that the two boys were not suspect, and the investigation into Carol's murder got colder and colder. Six weeks after her murder, the NAACP sent a telegram to the Attorney General, Ramsey Clark, requesting an investigation by the Department of Justice. The telegram stated that, quote, Morgan County has, I'm very annoyed they have my name, has uh, historically been associated with the Ku Klux Klan-like activities. In the previous year, 1967, a Klan, the brazenness in which they knew they could fucking do this is insane to me. Um, a Klan motorcade had made a tour of several central Indiana towns, which ended in Martinsville. There on the courthouse square, 30 or so robed Klansmen carried placards, and distributed literature. The Indianapolis Star reported that the group's spokesman said, quote, Martinsville was chosen for a demonstration because there was a strong local chapter in Morgan County. The federal government, however, declined the NAACP's request to open a formal investigation. More than three decades passed without any new information or coverage of Carol's murder. But Carol's family never gave up on finding out who had murdered her, especially her father, Paul Davis. Yes, it's stepfather, but I'm just say father. Um, in June 2000, Carol's mother, Elizabeth, received an anonymous phone call from someone saying that there had been more than one attacker on the night of Carol's murder, and that the murder weapon that had never been found was a screwdriver. Elizabeth told Paul, who dipped into his retirement savings, to hire a private investigator to look into it. The Indiana State Police had also recently created a cold case investigation team, and upon hearing of the headway Paul and the private detective had made, the department reopened and assigned two investigators to Carroll's case. In November 2001, the investigators received an anonymous letter naming the killer as Kenneth Clay Richmond. The letter also said that Richmond's daughter, Shirley, had witnessed the murder. On May 8th, 20, oh, sorry, not 20, on May 8th, 2002, police arrested Kenneth C. Richmond in an, in an Indianapolis nursing home. Richmond was a 70-year-old career criminal with a history of bizarre behavior and affiliation with groups such as the, uh, the Klan. Um, at the time of Carol's murder, Richmond lived on a nearby Hendricks County farm and was just passing through Martinsville on the night that Carol was murdered. Sorry, that he did it. He, he murdered Carol. Um, Richmond, however, 
was found not competent to withstand trial, and he died three months later of a pre-existing condition. Richmond's estranged daughter, Shirley, cooperated the details of Carol's murder, including the clothing that Carol was wearing that night, which had never been revealed to the public. Detectives believed that the information given about the murder was accurate, and they had found one of the killers. The police knew they would not have found Shirley if it had not been for the anonymous phone call and letter. Both the call and letter had been provided by Connie McQueen, Shirley's former sister-in-law. Shirley had confided in Connie about the murder, and Connie felt compelled to do something 15 years after she had been told about the murder. Shirley McQueen confirmed that her father and another man had been riding around drinking together, and as a seven-year-old, she watched from the back seat as her father and the other man murdered Carol. When her father and the other man got back into the car, Shirley said uh, her father laughed, and he said she got what she deserved. Imagine being a child and seeing that. Like, I can't. Um, like, a, I I'm sorry, know. the terror everyone is subject to in this, like, the terror of being a person of color in a place where mm -hmm. people hate you literally because of literally how tan you are. Like, I get it. Everyone <laughs> The melanin content tan. of your skin. Yeah, it determines whether or not people hate you. But then also to be a child. Yeah. See that and then go home with that person for that's got to be terrifying also. Yeah. She said as her father was driving back home, he gave her $7, $1 for each year of her life to keep quiet about what she had witnessed. Carol's other murderer remains unknown. It's a really cheap price of silence. Though. Yeah, well, but I, I guess, guess for a seven-year-old it's different. There's probably also like a a whole history of violence there. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I, I when he's out there <clears throat> acting like that, he's not just a peach to have at home. Right. They were estranged, and he was yeah. in a home, so, you know. Um, um, I hope he's rotting in hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do. Um, though widely believed to be a thing of the past, many hundreds of towns continue to effectively exclude black people and other minorities in the 21st century. Historians have found that most sundown towns deliberately hid the means by which they became and remained all white. Apart from oral histories, there are often few archival records that describe precisely how sundown towns excluded African Americans. Laws and policies that enforced racial exclusion have largely disappeared, but de facto sundown towns existed into the 1980s, and some may still be in evidence today. And that concludes my story on the history of Sundown Towns and the murder, murder of Carol Jenkins. <sighs> so, yeah, guys, I know it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the happiest episode we've ever done. But yeah. also, Important, I feel that I the fact that we weren't taught about Sundown Towns by design, by the way, that wasn't an accident in school. Um, and the fact... That we don't know. I mean, we live in Florida, and we don't know about the Mim story. Yeah, like you don't. You know who you this person was. It, I mean, you like... hear about the most right thing. We hear about Martin Luther King. We know about Malcolm X. Um, but you hear about Martin Luther King was good, and Malcolm X, at least like from the education I got in school, was Malcolm X was violent. That's yeah, he's bad. bad. He's bad. He's a terrorist or something like that. Which actually, and... it's not right. Well, I mean, the FBI was also like. 
I mean, that was a whole ass campaign. Yeah, like by all the of FBI. that. Well, for both Malcolm X and MLK, like and the MLK Black Panther was like, yeah, they were. Well, we grew up. Malcolm thinking, X was a Black Panther, right? I don't remember. I, I, so, I don't want to. But, but I just like the Black Panthers were supposed to be like this terrorist group. They're always like they're bad guys. That's like, what no, you're you're taught. They're sick of white people's shit, and they live right. here. And they're just Spoilers, choosing... they live here. Like, they're people, they're citizens. Yeah. And they're fucking mad, and it's... When... It feels a lot like... I forget where I heard this for the first time, but it's a lot of white people saying that they would listen to black people's problems if they would just act right first. Right. And you don't <laughs> yeah. need to sit and act right when you've got 200 years of oppression in this country alone, and I'm shorting them many years because I don't remember exactly how old America yeah. is. I'm a terrible citizen. But it's... Yeah. Like, if you just lower your voice and it's like, okay. Clearly, that doesn't get anybody's attention, right. or you get assassinated. Or yeah. I guess it didn't matter, because they both got assassinated. Everybody got assassinated. Yeah, they all got assassinated, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so this is the... It's a heavy episode. Um, next week will be lighter. Yeah, these a little lighter, are yeah. also important truths yeah, I can't, in American history, I feel. Yeah, I can't... Uh, I can't... I can't... I can't make this funny. Sorry, guys. It's, yeah. you know... It's hard to insert... A joke here um but yeah and i am also sorry for coughing in your ears this whole time i no, do my best not. she meant it <laughs> um but yeah guys uh you know go take a stretch do some yoga go outside look at the clouds or something pet a dog pet cat um and then register to vote and register vote to vote please um and then we will uh see you next time but in the meantime uh, you can find us on our Instagram at forward slash history woes. You can also, if you'd like to become a Patreon, find us on our Patreon at forward slash history woes. Um, and on our Instagram, you can find our link tree, uh, which uh, you can listen to our podcast wherever your podcasts are streaming from there. Um, and wherever we will... your pods are casting. And, yeah. and, and when y'all listen to this episode, I'll be getting married in two days. Yes. So, um, yeah, I've, you know. Congratulations to me and whatever. Congratulations to you. And your bomb ass speech, whatever you're gonna Yeah, we'll say. see what I see what I come up with. Alright. Yeah. Anyway, thanks guys. Thanks guys. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.